a mess. Um, that's how the Lord likes it, eh? That's how he likes it, that worship has completely undone me. Okay. So, I love the start of anything new. So, um, a new year is right up my street. I love how we can just gently slip out of one year, one decade, and into another, just like that. I love the feel of a crisp made bed. Anyone else? Yeah, yeah. I love to be the first to walk on unmarked sand that the tide has washed like new. Yeah? I love to see the cursor on my laptop blinking away at the top of an empty page. There's something about new starts, fresh beginnings, that crisp white space that causes my heart to leap. Because it's there where we stand on the cusp of what has been and what is to come, that hope and possibility and dreams and adventure stir. It's a time to push in and to lean in. It's a time to embrace courage and pursue boldness. It's a time to grab hold of expectancy as we allow the Lord to reveal to us a picture of something different, of something better, of destiny and promise that he whispers to us. And sometimes we even get to see it. We even get to taste it but it's not very often with our eyes or with our mouths, but it's in our soul, in our inmost being. And it's in this place where we intentionally have to let go of the old in order to embrace the new. Where the season that we are in finishes and a new day, a new season is there for us to enter into. And for some of us, this is really exciting. This is exactly what we want. This is exactly what we're yearning for. And for others of us, we're not quite so sure. Because the reality is we prefer things that are familiar to what is unfamiliar. But can you imagine, just for a moment, standing on that cusp, that bridge between what has been and what is to come. And despite how you may feel about that, imagine being a person who puts their foot out, stepping into the promise of all that is to come. To walk on it, to taste it, to live in it, to discover its beauty, its promise, its blessing, and its abundance, only to have it taken away from you. Only to have it taken away from you. All that's been promised, all that you have uh, longed for, all that has been spoken over you, for all of your leadership, training, and development, everything you were born for suddenly is no more. And it's not because of anything you've done this time. It's because of other people's stuff, their lack of faith, their disbelief, Their lack of courage, their crass talk, smearing and insulting the things of God, the promises of God. And so it's taken away. But because our God is so good, because he's so gracious, because he keeps his promises, 40 years later, it's time to step into that very same edge. 
the same bridge, that boundary of entering into a brand spanking new season that you've been longing for, that you have been yearning for, you've been dreaming of. And this new chapter that you find yourself in, you can get to, you, not only can you get to enter into, but you have this absolute privilege of being able to lead your people, an entire nation into. And so this evening, we're going to look at how Joshua, 40 years after taking his first initial steps into the land promised by God, finally gets to take possession of it. We're going to look at some of the essentials needed to step into a new season well, because it's coming. It's coming. I feel it stirring like the wind picking up speed as it blows through the land. There is a stirring and a shifting, and I believe that we're on the cusp of something, that a change is going to happen to the spiritual landscape of our nations, a conversion of the spirit that is going to burst forth and penetrate our land. Just like Joshua there is a call on us as a movement to change and reshape the nation and the nations. So let's read together. We're in Joshua 1 this, this evening, even, and we're going to read uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the river Jordan into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. Amen. Amen. So this new season for Joshua begins with a closing of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. You see, everyone of Joshua's and, Joshua's and Caleb's generation, they're dead. Only their children remain. Even Moses now is gone. You see, Moses brought the people to the very edge of the Jordan, but now it's Joshua's turn to lead the people across the Jordan and to occupy the very land that he spied out as a young man all those years ago. 
the land that the Lord had promised, the land that he had once tasted, the land that he longed for, the long-awaited promise of God was being spoken over Joshua. And maybe that's a word for some of us here tonight. You may be glimpsed, seen, maybe tasted or even walked on God, what all that God has promised you, but yet you found yourself, just like Joshua, separated from it. Maybe you're holding on to a promise that the Lord spoke over you many, many years ago. Maybe you've been camped on the very edge of the wilderness, not sure if or when you should move, or really even if you have the strength to move from that place. Or maybe you sense and feel a shift that is coming, a new thing, a new change, a new season that the Holy Spirit is beckoning you into. Wherever we're at, God does not want us to stop short in receiving all that he has for us. He doesn't want us camping on the edge of the promised land. He wants us in the land. And he longs for us to press further and deeper into all that he's calling us to as a movement and as his people. So how did Joshua move into the land? How did he lead his people out of one season and into another? How did he go about stepping into the promises of God and taking new ground for him? Because just like Joshua, we are called to be change makers. We are created to be people who bring about change, not just in our villages and towns, not just in our communities, not just in our cities or our regions, but our nations. England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. And for Joshua, the Lord knew that there was one thing that he needed to hear. One thing that would propel him forward. One thing that would cause him to step into the unknown. One thing that would make all the difference. God knew that not only did he need to hear, verse three, I will give you every place where you set your foot. Not only, verse five, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But God knew Joshua needed to hear, verse four, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. You see, the Lord knew exactly what Joshua needed to hear. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how Joshua feels about what the Lord is asking him to do, but I think the clue is in the, the fact that the Lord tells Joshua three times with increasing intensity, verse six, be strong and courageous, verse seven, be strong and very courageous, and verse nine, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And again, at the very end of the chapter, in verse 18, the people are telling Joshua, only be strong and courageous. I think the Lord is trying to tell Joshua something. You see, he was a brilliant military leader. He grew up under Moses' leadership. He served Moses, and then he assisted Moses. He had the very, very best teacher and guide. 
He, he was taught by Moses. He was eventually commissioned by Moses. And he spent large amounts of time in the tabernacle where the spirit of the Lord dwelled. Yet, it's clear that even with all of this, Joshua, he was not without fear or worry. In fact, the perpetual running theme over his life is be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified. Seven times the Lord tells this to Joshua. So three times in the book of Deuteronomy, whilst he's under Moses' leadership, and then four times in this book of Joshua. And by the eighth time, Joshua's telling the people, be strong and courageous. Joshua was in need of strength and courage. A bit like us, I would suspect. The obstacles that lay ahead of him loomed large. You see, the promised land wasn't just a land filled with giant fruit. It was also filled with giant people who were well prepared to fight. But the Lord has spoken over Joshua and into Joshua, be strong and courageous. And the Lord speaks over us and into us, be strong and courageous for the, all that we are facing, for the pressure and the uncertainty of these times, for all that is to come and for all that we will face. You see, for Joshua and for us as a movement to take new ground, to face the unknown, requires point number one, stepping into a new season with strength and courage. Verse six, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. So firstly, we can be strong and courageous on the basis of his promise. So the Lord, he has promised this land, this land of Canaan, the promised land to Abraham and to all of his descendants. He made a covenant with them. We're a covenant people. The Lord always keeps his promises. There is nothing more sure or certain about the promises of God. What makes them so sure? What makes them so certain? Because of the one who makes them. He is good on his promises. He's good on his promises, which means he doesn't forget. Not even when they were spoken many, many years ago. Not even when they seem crazy or impossible or maybe even ridiculous. We can hold them close because we know that the way maker and the promise keeper is holding them even closer. Martin Luther said, when I get hold of a promise, I look upon it like a fruit tree. I shake it till the fruit falls. I love that. I love that. You see, not only can we be a people who stand on the promises of God, but we can be a people who shake down the promises of God. Amen? Yes. Okay, next one. We can be strong and courageous on the basis of his word. Verse seven and eight. Be strong 
and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. So I have a dog. His name is Teddy. And last year, Teddy and I, one Sunday afternoon, decided to go for a walk on our beach. Uh, We've done this walk many, many times before. But what you need to know about me is I get lost very easily. Very, I've got no sense of direction whatsoever. And so we were heading out onto the beach, and it wasn't bef- too long, I was lost in the sand dunes, completely disorientated and lost. Now, the weather was closing in, it was windy, it was raining, and it was becoming dusk. And I couldn't see the sea, I couldn't hear the sea, and I started to panic. So I did what probably most people do, is you pull out your mobile phone, see if you've got any signal, see, see if I could speak to Chuck or someone and say, you know, help. But no, no signal. I can't believe I'm going to admit this to you, but I will. The second thing I did was I looked around for some shelter, because I thought, I'm never going to find my way out of this place. I'm just going to hide in a safe place until a rescue party comes and finds me and Teddy. It's ridiculous, I know, but honestly, that's what I thought. And then I was like, no, no, don't be so silly. So I prayed, and I was like, Lord, you've just got to show me the right way. And as I prayed, I looked up, and at the very top of a sand dune, I saw what I thought was a dog's tail. And I thought, that must be the path. That's a dog walking path. And so Teddy and I, with the wind and the rain, ran up this absolute beast of a sand dune, only to find at the very top of it, we got a bit of a scare, because there was this massive hair, giant hair there. And what I had seen, what thinking it was a dog's tail, it wasn't, it was the tip of this hare's ear. And so Teddy had a great time running off chasing this hare, and I was there, At least it was on top of the sand dune. And what I realized was I could actually see where the sea was. And that was really helpful. And I realized that I needed to go down that sand dune, climb another sand dune, go down that sand dune, and then I was by the sea. So that's exactly what I did. So now we're by the sea, and the tide is coming in. It's pouring with rain. It's incredibly windy. I'm still panicking. And and then I'm like, oh, which way do I go? Do I go right or do I go left? Now, when I told Chuck this, when I eventually got home, he just thought it was absolutely ridiculous and hilarious because he's like, everyone knows you turn left. Well, I didn't know that you turn left. And so I'm like, Lord, you've got to show me which way to go. And I felt him say, go left. So the tide's coming in and I am running. Now, it's flipping hard to run on sand, isn't it? You know, and I've got that thing where this, my, the sweat is like dripping down my back because I'm so hot and I'm running and there's not a soul anywhere and I'm like, am I going the right way? Am I going the right way? I'm not sure I am. And I turn a corner and I see some lights and I'm like, oh, habitation. Oh, there's people. And then I was like, is it... Is it my village or is it another village? And I was like, I don't care. There's going to be people. It's going to be warm. I'm going to get safe and dry. It's going to be okay. Keep running. So Teddy and I were running, running, running. Wind howling, uh, raining. Um, The tide is coming in. And I'm still freaking out. Really freaking out. And then I turn another corner. And I see 
the Blue Boat Shed. And the Blue Boat Shed is um, iconic, really, in the parts that we live in, in Aberdeenshire. And uh, people come and they get their photo taken here. It's, um, yeah, it's just a beautiful setting, and it's part of my village. It's the, be the beach is right exactly near my village. And as soon as I saw that Blue Boat Shed, I knew Teddy and I, we were going to make it. We were okay. And here is a picture of Teddy and I after... <laughs> I took a picture because I thought at some point this is really going to be a brilliant sermon illustration. Not thinking I was going to share it with all you lot. But anyway, there you go. <laughs> the second time the Lord speaks strength and courage to Joshua, he's reminding him his word is our compass and our guide. It's our cloud by day and it's our fire by night. And it does exactly for us what the blue boathouse did for me. It stops us being lost and directionless. It puts us back onto the right path, keeping us orientated and aligned in him. That is why God is commanding Joshua to meditate on his word day and night. And it literally means to mutter to mutter, and in Joshua's day, meditating would have meant just speaking God's word over and over, very quietly, under his breath, until he could memorize it. Let's keep being a people who fall in love with the scriptures, over and over and over again. Being full up on the word of God gives us faith and confidence in him, so that we can be bold and very courageous. Next one, we can be strong and courageous on the basis of his presence. Verse nine, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I love this. You see, God is so clearly wanting to sink these truths deep inside of Joshua. Three consecutive times, time after time after time. He, he wants this message to be pretty loud and pretty clear. You see, Joshua felt very alone and probably really daunted by all that the Lord was asking him to do. And the reality is, as we know, sometimes the leadership can feel really lonely. It can feel really heavy. Sometimes the weight of it can almost feel like it might crush us at times. And tonight, I just sense the Lord wants to say to us, he wants to gently slip alongside of us, and he wants to link his arm in ours. And he wants to say, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord, your God, is with you. And I will be with you wherever you go. Wherever you go, you're not on your own. You're not on your own. Some of you need to hear that tonight. You're not on your own. He's with you. He's with you. We love his presence. We need his presence. We can do nothing without it. 
Let's always be a people of his presence. Let's always be a people who, like Moses, would say, if your presence does not go with me, don't send me up from here. You see, when we have his promise, when we have his word, when we have his presence, we can be strong and courageous because it's not about us. In fact, it's absolutely nothing to do with us. It's all about him. It's all based on him. And because of him, we can be strong and courageous. Even when we need to cross a huge river. Even when we need to walk mountainous and really rough terrain. Even in battle. Even in facing giants. He makes us brave. So Joshua, he tells his officers, go through the camp and tell everybody to get ready because in three days' time, we are going to cross the River Jordan and we are going to take possession of the land. So we're going to pick up the story again in chapter 3 and we're going to read verses 1 to 4. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went through the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. So Joshua and the Israelites, they break camp and they move to the edge of the Jordan. Now there's only one thing that that lies between them and the promised land. The river. The river Jordan. Except there's a problem with the river. It's become uncrossable. Verse 15 tells us, now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest. So the river at any other time of year would probably have been quite a simple thing to cross. But here, right here, right now, it's become a raging river. It has burst its banks. It's swelled to this absolutely powerful flood. It's incredibly deep and it's angry with an overwhelming current. And the nation of Israel are camped right by it. Verse 2 tells us that they spend the next three days waiting. Camped there, waiting, seeing, hearing, experiencing the power of that mighty river. Can you imagine just being in your tent at night? them just trying to sleep, and all they can hear is the roar of the water. They've spent 40 years waiting for this moment, and now they've got to wait again. They've got to wait again. My daughter, a few years ago, um, she bought a friend home for tea, and do what probably most parents do. I check with the friend, you know, what food do you like to eat? And as part of my question, I said, oh, do you like broccoli? And she said, I love broccoli. So I was like, great, we'll have broccoli. Not just broccoli, but we'll have some broccoli with our tea. And so we're all sitting down and we're eating our meal and uh, the broccoli is being passed to this wee girl. And I noticed that she doesn't take any. 
And I turn to her and I say, oh, I thought you told me you loved broccoli. And she said, in her sweetest voice, with a lovely big smile, she said, oh, I do love broccoli, but not enough to eat it. <laughs> Hilarious. I think that's probably how most of us feel when it comes to waiting. Sometimes the thought of it isn't too bad until we're actually in it. I find waiting really difficult. I'd rather do anything but wait. I'd rather be going than waiting. You probably feel the same as me. You know, we prefer instant, don't we? Instant high-speed internet connection. Instant food, instant communication, instant shopping. I was gonna say instant coffee, but probably not so much. We love, <laughs> we love instant. But the thing is, sometimes God says, wait. He says, wait. Waiting when there is a longing in our heart is really hard to do and often incredibly painful, particularly when we're wired to do, when we're wired to go, when we hear the mantra so often, don't just stand there, do something. But sometimes God says to us, don't just do something, stand there. Stand there, wait, wait on me, wait on me. Point number two, stepping into a new season requires waiting. Waiting on the Lord, waiting on him to move, waiting on his timing. You see, in the waiting, the Lord is cultivating something within us so beautiful and so profound that is of equal, if not of more importance than the thing we're actually waiting for. And as we wait, we hold on to the fact that he is in control that he does know what he is doing, that he is in charge. You see, for Joshua and for us, when we come to these crossing moments of our lives, we're not just waiting around, we're not just hanging out, we're waiting on God. We're waiting on him. And so for three days, the Israelites camped there, right by the river, waiting on God. And then on the third day, Joshua, he gives his officers the command, tell the people to get ready. Something is about to happen. Can you imagine? Just put yourself in that place for a moment. The air is thick with anticipation. This is the moment the people have been waiting for. The moment has finally arrived. Verses three and four. When, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you've never been this way before. God was on the move, and so are his people. The Ark of the Covenant was to lead the way. The Lord was gonna lead them and guide his people. God was with them. 
And Joshua and the Israelites, they were to follow him. They were to pursue his presence. They were to go after him because they have never been this way before. But before any of this can happen, see what Joshua tells the people straight after. Verses five and six, he says this. Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. Point number three, stepping into a new season requires consecration. God calls us, his people, to holiness. And for the Israelites who were standing on the edge of the Jordan, this meant washing themselves with water and practicing the ceremonial rites that would make them clean, that would enable them to be able to come before the Lord with clean hands and pure hearts. They were able to enter into the promised land and God was giving them this opportunity right here and right now to get right before him, to examine their lives, to confess and to forsake sin, and to come before him and devote themselves again fully and wholeheartedly to him. We've got um, three kids and... um, A good few years ago now, we had one of those days, if you're a parent, you'll know what I'm talking about, when one particular child decides they're not going to play ball, and everything you do is wrong, and there's arguments and tantrums all day long, and it's really, really, really difficult. Well, we had one of those days, and I remember putting this particular child to bed at night, and pretty frustrated, I remember leaving the room, and just before I left the room, I said something like, I think you should spend some time reading your Bible and praying. And then I kind of like in love slammed the door because I was just like done. And in those moments as a parent, you often wonder, does any of that ever sink in? Like, do they ever do any of that stuff? But that's exactly what we did. And so about an hour, hour and a half later, Chuck and I are downstairs. And um, we don't know what we're doing, we're doing something, probably watching TV or something. And we heard this almighty thud. Like, I thought a wardrobe had fallen over. It was that bad. And we were like, what the? And so we're legging it up the stairs as quickly as we can get. And then we hear this almighty noise coming from that particular child's bedroom. And when we walk into their room, they are on their knees, on the floor, shaking violently and sobbing. And we're like, what? We're we're a bit slow, Chuck and I. We're, We're like, what? What's going on? It took us a while to realize that it was the Lord. The presence of of God had fallen on our child and he was shaking violently and he was sobbing and confessing over and over and over again, I'm such a wretch, 
I'm so sorry, I'm such a wretch, over and over and over again. It was the most beautiful thing we've seen. It was a marking moment for them. You see, the Lord's heart for us is to be a people of consecration, to be a people who become undone in his presence, where we lay before him all that we are, all that we carry, all that we keep hidden away. You see, on the eve of one of the most greatest days in their history, Israel was commanded to be certain that they were clean and they were right with God. And so too I wonder, for us as leaders in the room tonight, if the Holy Spirit is asking the same of us. As we stand on the edge, as we stand in all that is to come, in the cusp of the Spirit, we wanna be ready to enter into all that the Lord has prepared for us with clean hands and a pure heart. You see, in the waiting, there is the beauty of consecration and sanctification, where we can take our shoes off, where we can lie face down before Jesus, knowing that he longs to come and clean us and fill us afresh. Okay. Then the Lord said to Joshua, verse eight, tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's water, go and stand in the river. Point number four, stepping into a new season requires standing in the river. There is a call on us as a movement to change and reshape the nation and the nations. That even when the odds are stacked heavily against us, even when our surroundings look bleak and impossible, it doesn't change our call. It doesn't change our mandate. It doesn't stop us. You see, you might think that the call on your life is to lead a church or plant a church or pastor a church. You might think the call on your life is to lead worship or kids ministry or youth ministry or compassion ministry. You might think the call on your life is to write books or to be an entrepreneur or teach or to be a childminder or a senior manager in the NHS. But your call is far greater than that. You might not feel it, You might not think it, you might not even currently believe it, but that doesn't change who you are. You are called to be change makers. You were made to stand in the rivers, in the waters. You were called to go out into the middle of the river and see it part and freedom found. Don't hide it. Don't try and be someone else. Don't water down the flame that is within you. Don't conform. You see, the call of God is often too big, too hairy, too scary, too crazy, and that's the way he likes it. That's the way he likes it. Because we have to depend on his power. We've got to depend on him. It's all about him. (sighs) 
Okay, let's pick up the story again. Verse 11. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zaranath. While the water flowing down to the sea of the Arabah, Sorry, I'm not very good at pronouncing things. That is the Dead Sea was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry land. You see here, that God, he didn't hold back the water until they put their feet into the river. Only after they had stepped into the river, where they were totally powerless, where they were completely reliant on the Lord, did he demonstrate his power. You see, waters part when we step out in faith, when we place our feet in impassable rivers. When God goes before us, when he's called us to do what seems crazy, impossible, ridiculous, daunting, we never want to be the kind of people that just stand on the riverbank and don't move. Maybe we don't move and we're waiting for a better time. Maybe we're waiting for a better place. Maybe we're waiting for answers to the questions that we have. Maybe we're waiting for the flood to subside. But that river is going to carry on raging. And we'll just get stuck. That is not how he's made us. That is not what he has called us to be because we're not giving God anything to work with. He wants to partner with us. He wants to work in and through us. You know, there are great portions of land that God would give us. The enemy presently occupies them. They don't belong to the enemy. They belong to God. And he has given them to you and he's given them to me. The enemy, he may currently occupy them, but God owns it. God owns it, and because God owns it, it's ours. It's ours for the taking. Picture the scene. Everyone's eyes are on the Ark of the Covenant. 
the priests are holding the ark high on their shoulders as they take those steps into the rushing Jordan. The whole nation of Israel is standing there. They are standing there watching. They are standing there waiting. They're right by this thundering river, watching, waiting with clean hands and pure hearts. They're looking to see what the Lord is gonna do. And then suddenly someone shouts out, the water's residing. It's dropping fast. And then someone further, way, way further upstream notices that the water is no longer running. It's piled high in this massive watery heap. And you can see the riverbed. And then imagine, as you see the riverbed, suddenly the riverbed has become dry. It's dry for crying out loud. And it's not only dry in a wee patch all the way down to the Dead Sea, it's it's completely dry. And now the thunder of the river is replaced by the thunder of Joshua and the people of God as they cross over that river and into the promised land, into a new season. Why don't we stand? Thank you.